All right. There we go. I was just going to wait till after I pray because Barbara always tells me. But that's okay. She's not here. That's right. She's not here. All right. Father in heaven, we worship and praise you as the exalted Lord and God of the heavens and the earth. We uh, admit to you, O Lord, we are but uh, sheep who would easily go astray if it were not for your spirit. And uh, we would not learn, O Lord, in and of ourselves, O Lord, of this great God who we serve except for the Spirit of God teaches us. And so we do so depend on you, Lord, and we thank you that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. And so, Lord, would you teach us all over again some familiar truths and some new truths, hopefully and prayerfully. But, O Lord, that we might find our surety and security in Christ and his finished work, and that, O Lord, it would lead us upstairs in worship to the glory of your name. Amen. All right. Hebrews 9, 6 through 14. We're going to read two texts. Um, let's read first the Hebrews text that I've been given charge of, and then we're going to just take a quick flip over to Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to incorporate it a little bit, not a lot, but a, a little bit for making a couple points. Hebrews 9, 6 through 14. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But in the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and of ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. Now go to Galatians 3. <clears throat> 21-26 Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Mm -hmm. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Keep your hands in that Galatians 3 text while we also look in... Hebrews chapter 9. 
got a little introduction here. The author's teaching in the last eight chapters continues his theme that Christ's high priestly office exceeds all the old covenant types of the past, even while the temple still stood in 60 to 65 AD when this was written. Christ is better than the angels who delivered the law. He is better than Moses who ministered the law. Christ is better than the tabernacle and the priest who served in it, even better than the high priest himself. When Jesus said to the Jews, before Abraham was, I am, he was stating the fact he was greater than all, even Abraham himself. The reason for this is the reality that all men die. Every intercession by man fails to appease a holy God. Christ's intercession has made the Old Covenant obsolete. He serves at the pleasure of the Father's will, at his right hand in the permanent heavenly tabernacle. His mediation never ceases because he will never die again, and his ministry is a permanent one. For the shedding of his blood established a new covenant which exceeds the old because its promises to the Christian are eternal promises. Israel must recognize that Abraham was the servant of Melchizedek, a type of Christ yet to come. And if Israel desires to be the children of Abraham, then they must offer up all their spiritual sacrifices to Christ alone. The church is, a, is built upon this foundation. And the Christian, the Jewish Christian, here referred to in the book of Hebrews probably, who desires to go back to these shadows, has forgotten the power and the completeness of Christ's high priestly work. Today's text reminds us of these things. The inadequacy of the old covenant tabernacle and the frailty of the priest who ministered the demands of the law within it. It's a mouthful. It's a lot of content in the book of Hebrews, is it not? In Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to ask a question here. What does Paul say in Galatians 3, having already read, by the way, Hebrews chapter 9, and do that page flipping, all right? What does Paul say is the impediment to man to fulfilling perfectly the law of God in Galatians? What's the impediment? By the way, it it has everything to do with Hebrews chapter 9. The wording is just different though, and I want to kind of point this out. What does Paul say is the impediment to fulfilling perfectly the law of God? Something there. Is it the law? Is it man? Is it both? According to Paul in Galatians 3. What is it? Verse 22 and 23 will help you out if you refer to those two verses. Can you say the question one more time? What does Paul say is the impediment to man to fulfilling perfectly the law of God? The whole world. 22 and 23 are the answers, of course. The fact that he wakes up in the morning. He wakes up in the morning. All right, starts to think. Sin. All right, he's under sin. What does it it mean when the scriptures say we are under sin? Under the law, you are under sin. To be under something, for instance, when it says, uh, the earth is thy footstool. Under Christ, right? Authority. Authority, absolutely. The law is the authority over the conscience of man when you are under the law. When sin is over you, in other words, sin is the authority over the conscience of man when you are unsaved. Right? So this is an impediment to man. In other words, 
the law could not do some things, especially it could not clear the conscience of man. That's the overall tenor of chapter 9 and this portion I'm given. The rest of chapter 9 and also chapter 10. I'm not saying it's the only theme, but it does refer multiple times about the conscience of man. There's something within man. And the backdrop here, of course, is the old covenant tabernacle and the Aaronic priesthood. And of course, we know the book of Hebrews is constantly referring back and forth. Compare the angels with Christ. Compare Melchizedek with the Aaronic priests. Compare the temple with now the temple in the heavenly realms. These contrasts are intended for us to look at the imperfections in this earth and the perfections of heaven and the one who sits upon that throne. And who we now are to place our own selves under the authority. Right? So first, that we are all under sin. And secondly, the law is like our jailer. According to uh, verse 23 in Galatians 3. But before faith came... We were kept in custody under the law. Under sin, under the law. Like a jailer. Remember, the the context here in the book of Hebrews is the conscience. And we're going to talk about that even more fully in a few minutes. Gary? Before faith came. Mm. Does that mean there was no faith before? We'll answer that question in a little bit. Okay, that's coming up. Yes. And that's coming up to understand what it means that there's this time of reformation to which you and I now experience in this new covenant age. Or now the old covenant is obsolete. Because why? Because something new has come along in the scenes through the finished work of Christ, brother. So kind of like metaphorically speaking, the jail keeps you from breaking the law but not because you don't want to but because you kind of can't. The law kind of in the same way where it says it keeps you imprisoned or whatever that word was it's sort of that same thing like it doesn't touch the heart it touches the it, it like impedes the action. Is that kind of the sense of things? The comparison that's going to be made here in Hebrews 9 that affects the conscience of man is that the law only can affect the external not the internal in the age of the Holy Spirit indwelling in the ooh ooh yeah a lot of this is tied in of course we can't go to every reference that would build upon this right but the idea though and the reason why I went to Galatians Paul speaks as faith as if it's something present and future tense and then the logical question that Gary asked, and it's the logical question the reader would in Galatians 3, is, well, I thought they were all saved by faith in the old. So the point that he's making is, is something we have to make in relationship to Hebrews 9. But we're starting out slowly. What was the impediment to man? He's under sin. He's under the law. What was the Old Testament tabernacle practice for the priests under the Aaronic priesthood? They offered sacrifices to God. But what is the point that the author of Hebrews is making? It's obsolete now. Why is it obsolete? Because one who has come has fulfilled the law and has removed the impediment of sin and its ability to imprison the soul of man and the conscience of man. Uh, there's, there's no... Uh, how can I say this? 
there doesn't seem to be, or any that I know of, any reference to the thought of man, like you were saying. It's only the physical constraints uh, of breaking the law. Mm-hmm. It's always a physical sin. It's always external. There are, there are no texts such as, even if you think of blah, 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 it's a sin. Well, we could go into... And we don't get to that until we get into the New Testament. We see allusions to it in the Old Testament. We're going to go to one which Jesus quotes that comes out of the Old Testament that appeals to the conscience. Where the law... By the way, the law was not ineffectual because the law was unholy. It was ineffectual because man was sinful. That's the whole point that Paul makes in the New Testament. So where in Hebrews in 9, 6 through 14 do we see the author point to this? He points to it in a different way, though. You could say that they are correlating text. That's the reason why I went to Galatians 3. In other words, where do we see an allusion to the fact that man is under sin and under the law? In other words, the law can't save him nor can the law remove a guilty conscience. It can't. Where do we see that in Romans 9, 6-14? Hint. Verse 7. What in verse 7 points to Galatians 3? I'm not, I'm not there, but I'm thinking of the verse, if there was a law that could have led to life, then faith, you know, grace would be in vain. Right. Back to Galatians 3. That's right. That's right. I was referring back to what you said in Hebrews 6. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if you look at the second part of 6, it says the priest entered regularly. So they there you go. Keep there you go. Going back. That's right. He had to do two things. First, he had to offer blood for himself, for his family, and eventually for the nation. But he actually entered the high holy place twice. First for himself, for his family, and then for the nation. Secondly, the repetition of sacrifices in it of itself kept saying to the conscience of man, God's not satisfied, God's not satisfied, God's not satisfied. He isn't. So what Paul is saying is, you're still under sin. By the way, we talk about the Old Testament saints being saved by faith. If Jesus Christ did not come in time and space in the first century to die on Calvary's hill and then arise again, would the Old Testament's faith save them? No. No, that's the whole point. So, just because they were fulfilling the Old Covenant law and it was a holy thing to which they did, it identified them with the nation as God's particular nation, even a chosen priesthood, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession. This is what God did with Israel. But it was not sufficient enough to save the soul nor relieve the conscience. It could never do it. Jesus Christ must intervene in human history and therefore fulfill the law and therefore relieve the conscience. So as much as we see faith in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, we do not see 
a salvation that is fulfilled. They were saved saints, yes. But if Jesus never came in human history, they weren't saved saints. Someone had, yeah. The reconciliation was deferred until Christ came and, and took care of everyone throughout history. By the way, Abraham was saved by what? His faith in what? The promise. The promise, not the law. In fact, the promise included not just his lineal descendants, plural, but particularly Paul brings up in Galatians, singular, the seed of Abraham's promise. Abraham placed his faith in Messiah, yet to come. And therefore, this faith has a, you could say, a time reference point to being fulfilled, as much as the law. There is a time where faith comes to its fullest of fruition. Why? Because it has an object to whom it places its faith in. If you place your faith in the law, you will remain under sin and under its authority of the law. But if you place your faith in the object of a promise and ultimately to the one who fulfills that object of the promise, Christ Himself, salvation is real and evidential. I'm thinking you get this, but I'm just thinking, reading verse 8 says, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not been had not yet been disclosed as mm-hmm. long as the first tabernacle was still standing. That just reinforces what, what you know, the fact that the law couldn't uh, uh, save. It was, you could say it was a temporary stopgap to point to Christ mm-hmm. where your faith must truly be lead you to. So what is the result of God ordaining an office like the high priest who gives sacrifices that cannot permanently remove sin? What's the result according to this text in Hebrews 9? We've mentioned it multiple times and just want to reaffirm it. Verse 9, right? By the way, let's read verse 8 and 9. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. The wording here in the New American Standard is really not great, but it's more exact. The word symbol in the American Standard could be actually uh, translated illustration. The Old Covenant Tabernacle referred to here as the first. Probably it's referring to this Henriksen says that the Old Covenant Tabernacle the author is now using simply as a symbol or it's an illustration of the imperfection of it. So therefore when the priest often went back and forth to offer sacrifices for the people or in the Day of Atonement in which he made sacrifices for himself, his family and for the nation kept saying, but by the way, by the way, we can use the phrase often for the Day of Atonement because it was year after year, every late September, early October, year after year, we have this great big festival of the Day of Atonement, the forgiveness of the nation's sins. And therefore, because they had to do it yearly even, it said, your guilt still remains, your guilt still remains, your guilt still remains. This, this whole subject kind of taps into something that I've 
thought about a lot, but haven't like researched that much like on my own. Mm-hmm. So this this whole idea of people that were like quote unquote like saved under the law, right? Mm-hmm. Saved before Christ came. You know, we we you know here in the New Testament, like they confess me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. Mm-hmm. Like back then, that's kind of what you did, though, right? Like you confessed it, or you you went through like you did these kind mm-hmm. of like things, and you were. So, like, we use a term, like, in our culture, like, going through the motions, Mm -hmm. right? Like, a Christian going through the motions and doing all the right things and going to church and saying all the right things, but yet they may not actually be be saved. Was there that in this, like, law practicing, you know, where there were people who legitimately felt like they were under the law and doing all the things they were supposed to be doing, but actually (coughs) weren't? Saved, and if so, mm-hmm. what made them saved or not saved? If it wasn't like a confessing and a condition of the heart, if it was more action based. It's interesting, uh, Joyce. And, yeah, okay. uh, it's interesting. Joyce and sister asked Joyce at one time, "Are you telling me all Catholics are unsaved?" No, that they're all wrong. That they're all wrong. Slash unsaved. Okay, but the implication is there. Sure. Um, Hebrews four says yes in the relationship. In this sense, if you place your faith in the law, let's put it more contemporary, even in sacraments, <coughs> if you place your faith in that, in your to bring church. grace to your heart, to relieve your conscience, you are not saved. If you place your faith in Christ alone, that's where salvation lies. But they have the option. I'm talking like before. Well, in Hebrews 4, it says they all failed except for Joshua and Caleb, that generation. So, in other words, yes, there are those who held it as an external restraint and an external thought that they were the children of God, and yet without genuine salvation. A whole generation. A whole generation, which is incredible. Again, the, the majority of the Jews missed what salvation really was. It's salvation and what God was going to do through the loins of Abraham to bring about a salvation by grace through Messiah. I promise you I'll do this, he says. Do you trust my promise? And the answer is yes. And God accounted it to Abraham as righteousness. That's justification. And therefore... A genuine saving faith. But it's already not yet. If Jesus never came in human history, all of that would have been not. But of course, then the very integrity and character of God would be at stake. Because God made a promise and His book of Hebrews says He swore by Himself. And therefore, it will come true. And therefore, place your faith in my promise. Because I tell you, it will come true. That's where salvation led. What, what, what was? They looked at the sacrifices as a sacrifice that temporarily atoned for sin, but not permanently. This is the whole big deal the book of Hebrew makes on thematically. Jesus Christ died on the cross and He offers His sacrifice to the Father in heaven. A more permanent tabernacle with a permanent sacrifice. Having been offered once, He perfected for all time those who were sanctified. It's a one-shot deal with Jesus. It's not this 
ever-evolving faith in a sacrament or ever-evolving faith in a law of Moses? Not at all. And it's the reason why... We have to move on here. It's the reason why that the point he's making here includes the conscience. The conscience was not relieved by the priest. Could you imagine that? That's a crisis of faith in the Old Covenant, isn't it? A crisis of faith. But if that ironic priest still believed as Abraham believed, he himself was also saved, justified by faith alone. Gary, you were going to say something? Oh, oh okay. Am I helping answer some of the questions? Okay. Can I just ask a question? Yeah. If so, would you say in the Old Testament they didn't have the basis for an assurance? That's a very good way to put it, Mark. Very. They did not have the basis of assurance. Well, I take that back. Now, let's reword this here. I'm going to be exact here. If their assurance was upon the law, then their faith was void. I, the, the Scripture says, and maybe in Hebrews it says, if the inheritance is by law, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. That's why the law had to change. When the priesthood of change, of necessity, the author of Hebrews says, of necessity, the law must change also. And so, we see its obsoleteness. Because the law only dealt with one thing. Because of the sinfulness of man, it only could change the external man. Jesus comes on the scene and he confronts the internal man as well. So the assurance of salvation then that Mark is talking about is really kind of lies in that hope and understanding of a future event. Right. And and the assurance is still by faith as much as it is still today. It's still by faith in the promises of God. But we haven't already not yet as well. Versus our faith that like that has happened. Well, in one sense you could say actually because they were looking forward to an atonement that wasn't finished on Calvary's cross yet, their faith was a strong faith to believe that God would do these things. Right. We at least look back and we see, wow, look what God has accomplished. Sure. But it's still faith in a righteousness to which God will give, not righteousness that we can gain through obedience to the law. Gary? I was just going to say the point, though, of the book of Hebrews, which I think is where you want to go, is basically the inadequacy of That's the right. system. The fact that there was a veil there that only the high, could, high priest could, could go in once a year yeah. and only with blood, and he was the only one that could enter it. That's right. And that's why he labors over, right, right from the beginning of the tabernacle service of worship, he's saying, wait a second, these are educated Jewish Christians, I mean, they already know about so Why is he laboring over the point of what the priest did? He's showing the inadequacy of it to remove guilt from the conscience. I always loved John Reisinger. He put this, plugged this in my head, and it makes so much sense. And I carry it with me today. And it comes up in text like this. The law can never make you guilt-free. It will always cause you to remain guilty if you place your faith within it. Larissa? Um, this is, might be a little bit of a bunny trail, and it's not really... Bunny trail? Has, has to do with the point of oh, it's a bunny, bunny trail, not a <laughs> rabbit trail. <laughs> I'm from Texas. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, we're just talking about the faith of the um, Old Testament saints, um, and we believe that salvation can only come through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of 
talk that I've heard about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit being something that is um, special to the New Testament and only started right. on the day of Pentecost. So how would that, how does that work in the Old Testament? Where are those saints actually indwelled with the Spirit? Well, the indwelling was temporary as it was where priests and prophets and kings were indwelt. But it was not in an overall general sense with the saints of God in an overall indwelling with a man. It was still awaiting this time of reformation to which he is speaking here. When Christ comes, when Christ comes, and it's a beautiful picture, when Jesus, remember when Jesus breathed the Spirit upon his disciples? We said, that's the oddest text in the world. But we are talking about a collaboration of the Trinitarian God in which he now, by authority, and in relationship with the Spirit of God, breathes in this Reformation age a new covenant reality to which he brings to the people of God who place faith solely in him. Solely in him. So, again, we have progressive revelation. If, if you want to understand your Bible as a whole, progressive revelation is key. God progressively reveals Himself to the Jew and yes, even to the Gentile. He progressively reveals His personhood to us in Old Covenant ways and then in a newer New Covenant way that illumines us even to a greater expanse. Whether it's His personhood or even just individual doctrines of justification. Justification existed under the Old Covenant. But justification is fully realized when we see Christ and his justifying work. And what it really means. Dave talked about justification when he says, you will remember my sins no more. That's picked up in the New Testament. It's justification. But it's a shadow form in the Old. And now we see it in reality. Christ is central. It's the reason why sometimes we say, you know, if you're a covenant theologian, you emphasize covenants. If you're dispensational, you emphasize Israel. And if you're a new covenant believer, you emphasize Jesus. You better pick one because one leads you in certain directions more than others. And that doesn't mean we all don't believe in all three. But it does mean the emphasis, interpretive emphasis of trying to see the continuity of the Old and the New Testaments. They are better helped by understanding Christ as the central theme more than those other two. When the high priest went into the uh, temple, the day after the temple was rent, uh, the temple curtain was rent, he saw a sign in Hebrew that said, under new management. Is <laughs> <laughs> that what they teach in Bible school, Grace Eyes? That's right. <laughs> under, new under new management. I love it. All right, so this word conscience, I love it. I always want to do a sermon on the conscience. Uh, and never have yet, but maybe someday I will. Um, verse 9, which is a symbol, in other words, a symbol, the old covenant tabernacle, the Aaronic priesthood, is a symbol for the present time. And it's interesting, you cannot separate this from Jesus' ascension to the tabernacle still being in existence when this letter is written. So it's addressing those who are questioning whether to fall back to Judaism to a certain degree. To obedience of the law. It's the reason why the author of Hebrews is actually going to go in a very, you could say, um, aggressive direction saying, if you want to go back to this Mosaic law, 
If you want to go back there and be under it, you're trampling underfoot Christ. So it's a very serious thing. And so what he is doing is, is in my opinion, not only bringing in the Old Covenant tabernacle and how insufficient it is in weakness because of men, all right, but also to those who are still, if you're in Jerusalem as a born-again Christian and you're looking at that temple that's still there without the Ark of the Covenant, but it's still on that hill. It's still on that hill. And saying, do you really want to go back there? That only serves as a symbol now to you, an illustration now to you to what is really now fulfilled in Christ alone. Forgive my voice. It's still not better. But it was better than last week. So this word conscience in verse 9. The sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Literally, it's a knowing with and a co-knowledge with oneself. A witness born to one's conduct by conscience. In other words, I love Hendrickson. He, he phrases it this way. It's a barometer of sensitivity. In other words, you can inwardly, by conscience, judge the outward man. Your conscience is the immaterial self of rationality. Romans 2.15 talks about the ability to be able to determine right from wrong. It is a law of conscience within man. In that context, it's referring to the Gentile. Because the Jews had an external law that became the conscience of man. But we as unsaved Gentiles, Romans 2, have an internal conscience. So we still are not with excuse, even though we don't have the special revelation of God given to us. So either way, what Paul is saying in Romans 2, both are accountable. All have fallen short of the glory of God and are sinners under sin, under the law, under judgment. Go to Psalm 43.5 just as an example of this. I gave this text to a person recently, a Christian sister. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses it in his, in his book on uh, spiritual depression. Um, it's a great text. Uh, we talked about that subject yesterday at the men's breakfast actually Psalm 43.5 but it has everything to do with the inward conscience Psalm 43.5 why are you in despair O my soul that's the immaterial self the nephesh the Hebrew word um, it is the part of man that is eternal all right, but why are you in despair, O my soul? The question we have to ask: Who's asking the soul, right? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. The help of my countenance and my God. Two things here: that the conscience is able to ask the immaterial self of man. In other words, to to ask myself and to examine myself of the comparison between what's happened externally within me and internally. So in other words, Jesus says, he says, um, you know, they asked him why he didn't wash his hands. 
and they said he said back to me he says it's not it's not what is external that defiles a man but internal for the things that uh, that come out of the mouth uh, come from the heart in other words this conscience comes from the heart from the mind of man the the self of man which you can't you can't take and pull out of you uh, a doctor couldn't take and operate on you and pull out of you the self and say see it but it is very real and it has the ability to judge the external man it is a barometer of your sensitivity for good or for ill Randy I hit that on when I did Hebrews 3 when it says if you hear his voice today don't hide in your heart mm-hmm. we have that ability to deny our conscience and to um, dull it out That's we right. don't hear God anymore we can't hide in it that's right. Now, what's interesting, though, is, is it doesn't say in Hebrews 9 that the priest has intentionally hardened his heart, though. And I'm not saying you're saying that, by the way. But what it is saying is, is that rote obedience to the law and one's acceptance of that law to a degree at the expense of neglecting the Messiah to come or has come, depending on who you are, in what time in history brings about a searing of conscience that's implied because it can never remove guilt and unless that priest says what am I doing here I keep doing this year after year day after day and is God ever satisfied is he ever satisfied and the book of Hebrews is going to say in a very short period of time I'm no longer satisfied with the blood of bulls and goats for a body thou hast prepared for me and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices of sin, I've taken no pleasure. I do not take pleasure anymore with you, Aaronic priests. No more. And therefore, the conscience is drawn to a place of despair for the priest who still depends on the law. It's the reason why he's under it. It becomes this weight, and he can't get out from under the weight. It's too heavy for him the reason why in the book of Acts it says neither you nor your fathers could bear under the yoke of bondage any longer. The weight of depending on the law. Alright? So the Jews in general did not have this discernment. In general, the Jews, when Jesus arrived, he's talking to a nation of Jews that depended on the law. And wasn't so many of their questions to Jesus based on the law. Right? Well, why don't your disciples wash? Or, why don't your disciples fast? Right? Why? 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 A new lawgiver lawgiver has come on the scene who will give the spirit of the law of Christ, Paul says in Romans 8. What is the spirit of the law of Christ? It's the law of the commands of God that now deal and go straight to the conscience and the heart of man. Now you read your New Testament and even you read your Old Testament because you believe in Christ. You place your trust in Christ. You now have this Word of God. As the Scripture says, um, the Word of God is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. It goes directly to the heart of the matter, to the internal man. That's what it does. That's what conversion does by the enlightenment of the person of the Spirit of God within you. That's what happens in conversion. 
That's what happens. So this repetition brings about a sense of unworthiness. My conscience still brings guilt. How badly can the conscience of a believer be affected by the view, I must do something to appease God and to please Him? How bad can that get for the Christian if he goes in this direction, as even the Old Covenant Jew did? Get pretty bad, messy really quick, can it? Legalism, right? Look at Hebrews 9. Are you there? Not Galatians 3, but Hebrews 9. Look at verse 14, then we're going to skip over to 10.29 of Hebrews. How much more? He just gives three verses about the finished work of Christ. And then he says in verse 14, How much more? In other words, blood of bulls and goats, the sprinkling even of the ark, the lid of the ark and in the front of the ark, even all of that cannot compare to Christ's own blood. God in human flesh dying on the cross. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? I love the way this is phrased here. Because the priest's work without faith in Christ is dead works. Can you imagine that? If you go to a rabbi today, they don't have the temple, but they do have the synagogue. You go to him and say, by the way, you put so much trust in the Pentateuch. You take that scroll and before the congregation, you unroll it. And say, this is the word of God. You place your faith and trust in the law of Moses. Do you know God refers to that as dead works? Ooh, that's a hornet's nest ready to be opened up, right? But it's true. If the priest puts his faith in his own sacrifice, he is as dead as dead can be, spiritually, conscience-wise, and also relationship to God. They are dead works. It is why Jesus confronted the misuse of the Mosaic Law. He confronted it. Yep. Well, remember his disciples. He and his disciples are walking through a field and they start eating, popping, popping grains of, you know, seed of grain. And he says, do you see that your disciples are working? And he said, did you not read when David ate the showbread? What's he talking about there? Well, in that whole context, see that God desires mercy rather than sacrifice? He desires obedience rather than sacrifice? He's making a comparison against sacrifice when he says these things. Look at the heart. Do you see the mercy of God when David took and ate the grain? They needed to eat. They were famished. He was a servant of mine. Don't you find fault with him? Right? What does else say in that text? Oh, I'm trying to remember why. Oh, I just had a toot so bad. It was a, it was a great point, by the way. It was a great point. <laughs> Hebrews 10.29. There, there you go. Take it away. Hebrews 10.29. Look at this text. 
And I, trust me, I was chomping at the bit. I could teach this for 10 weeks. Uh, in the rest of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10, there are so many uh, references to the conscience. I didn't want to steal from someone else. I just wanted to lay a little foundation on the conscience today. It will be brought up again. Hebrews 10.29 um, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has been sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? That is the ramifications of one who places their faith in the law. Who depends on those sacrifices to still cleanse you from sin. You have trampled underfoot the Spirit of grace. The Son of Man. There's Trinitarian theology in there too if you want to look that one up, by the way. It's a wonderful text. So then why give the law that could not be obeyed or fulfilled? Why? Why have this great big institution? Well, I alluded to it earlier. Faith has to have an object to place in. God never intended the object to be the law of Moses. Never. It was always to be faith in Christ whether it was the promise that Christ would come or in the promise that Christ has come and he will fulfill all things and already not yet. Already you're saved. Abraham, same scenario. Already you're saved there, man. But you will see your Messiah yet to come. Todd, already you're saved. But you still will see your, your Messiah yet to come a second time. Same promise. Same salvation. Same justification. Same sanctification. Same love. Same work of the Spirit of God within us. Same. But a greater reality to be revealed so that we might see its fulfillment and its, you could say, the fullness. It's like the revelation of Christ as God. The author of um, Hebrews words it this way. He says, he says, all the fullness of the Godhead is with him in bodily form. All the fullness of Christ. The New Testament is the revelation of the fullness of Christ as God. This is a revelation of the fullness of God's work on Calvary's cross. That you and I have experienced God's atoning work. He gave of himself. God died on the cross for you and I. Your conscience has no more problem any longer with guilt. None. None. So if you are living with guilt still, and I'm not talking about a momentary I've sinned guilt experience. We all have that, do we not? We potentially can grieve the Spirit of God. And the beauty of Calvary is His reconciliation. His mercies are new every morning. Run to the cross. Run to Him. Run! But if you have a salvation model or doctrine that says it's in bait, my salvation is based on what I do, then your conscience still is guilty. And you will be like that priest often. You will often, not only as the priest did, offer sacrifice, but you will often go back to that thing you placed your trust in, whether it's a law, a tradition, whether it's a person or whatever. But your guilt cannot be removed in that setting. It can't. Gary? That's why it says in Hebrews 10, let us draw near mm. with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. Amen. Amen. That's why I said I could have gone to so many of these texts. I, if I just did a word study of conscience, I could have done a whole study without addressing actually the context that leads up to it here. So I just said I got to leave that for another day for other brothers to, to but teach it. But doing the Old Testament and going to the tabernacle with their sacrifices and the high priest even couldn't have that kind of peace and assurance no. No. that they would have acceptance with God and no. have a perfect conscience before Him. That's right. That's right. There is a new covenant revelation of certainty and assurance that we have that uh, I guarantee that the Old Testament saint struggled with. It was, it was, but it was still salvation by faith alone. Absolutely. But we are so blessed to live in this new covenant age. So, salvation had to wait for an object. So let's go back to Galatians 3 for the fun of it. So we have to ask, all right, so when did this happen where this conscience was finally relieved of its guilt and this Aaronic priesthood had to give way to a high priest after the order of Melchizedek? Well, Paul alludes to it here theologically in verse 23 and 24. Actually, um, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. In other words, not we don't place our faith in the law, but the law is beneficial to train us, to teach us, to guide us, to bring us to Christ, to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. The, the author of the book of Hebrews is giving this, you could say this, uh, answering the tension between law and grace. How do we view the Old Covenant? Well, under the circumstances of what you believe as true regeneration and salvation and justification, it's old. It's obsolete. It's ready to disappear. That's what it is. Why? Because now faith has come. Well, we had faith in the Old Testament. Yeah. But faith that has an object. Christ has already been crucified. It's the author saying to uh, Jewish believers, in my opinion, over this 30-some-odd-year period between Christ's ascension and before 70 A.D., where the temple is destroyed, you're walking around Jerusalem, you're still seeing that temple up there. You're still seeing the priest offering sacrifice, even though there's no Ark of the Covenant in, in the, the Holy of Holies. And saying, hey, you're not placing your faith in that. You're placing your faith in Christ. You have an object to your faith. He has come. He has died. You have seen this. You have heard this from His own disciples' words and observations in living with this risen Savior. You do not need to go back to the law. It only brings death and sorrow and guilt. So to me, that... In my understanding of this text, that would be the relevancy of the readers of this text. Your works are dead works if you think you have to go back to the Mosaic Law. That temple right now you're still seeing on that hill is just a symbol now. That's all it is. It wasn't a symbol in the Old Covenant, but it's a symbol now to you as born-again believers 
to which it says it's a failure in comparison to Christ's perfect sacrifice for atonement. So, um, yeah, go ahead. This was written five years possibly before the temple would be right. obliterated. Right. Obliterated. Wouldn't right. be on the earth again. In verse 10, and that's the reason why I worded it the way I did, this is where I think it brings in the relevancy to the people who will be reading this in the first century after Christ had ascended, and yet before 70 AD, when, the, when Jerusalem is destroyed along with the temple. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, in other words, the external part of man, for the body imposed until the time of Reformation... This reformation literally can be phrased a bringing right again or an amendment. What's an amendment to the Constitution? Okay. There's a change going on here, isn't it? Or an addition to, to clarify, right? Is that what it be? So, it's an amendment, a right arrangement or a correction. In other words, the correction, the right arrangement and relationship to the Mosaic Law, in particular here in this context, the Aaronic Priesthood. There's a correction going on. We talk about corrections right now. We're going through one in the stock market. Don't look at your 401k portfolio, right? There's a correction. Well, there's a correction going on here in the book of Hebrews to the minds of the readers who want to go back to the Mosaic Law, at least in part, so they can have one foot on one covenant part of history and another foot in the other part of covenant history. And it can't be. It can't be. This is a time of reformation where the road is made straight and right in Christ alone. And if you go back to that old system, you might as well be saying, I have dead works. <clears throat> and I'm a dead Christian with a dead conscience. This and, and I, I may have been a little aggressive in this verbally, partly my voice as well, but I must say the author of Hebrews treats this as a, you could almost say from an old covenant perspective, a high-handed sin. The high-handed sin is you're rejecting Christ if you go back to the Mosaic Law. And you don't want to go back to guilt, uncertainty, lack of assurance. Why do you want to go back there, dear Christian? We're talking about certainty of Christ's finished work. Of the knowledge of the fact that God loves you so much He died for you, you need nothing more to go before His presence with a guilt-free conscience. That's all you need, dear Christian. And when we go upstairs, that's what we will do. Whether it's the Lord's Supper, to which we will, not so much today, of course, last week, but the idea, though, is the Lord's Supper is... You are guilt-free. Go to the table and worship God as your guilt offering, your trespass offering, the offering that is a once-and-for-all offering that satisfies your conscience. And you can go up and partake and do it, by the way, as often as you like. That's where the often comes from too, you know. The often says your conscience is free that often when you partake of the Lord's Supper. By the way, we have a great message to give to the world. The world is very guilty. 
and they try to numb it with all kinds of pleasures of life. That's what they do daily. And those pleasures would drop as sins or scales of a fish would drop. Scaling a fish. I'm just picturing in my mind scaling a fish. You know what I mean? Just flying all over the place. That those that guilt would just drop if you just only trust in Christ. That's what the world does not know, but that's the message. That's the gospel to which we give the world, isn't it? You're guilty. You don't know what to do with it and you're numbing yourself. Let me tell you about a Savior that's a once and for all sacrifice. So anyways, Christ is the good things to come. Verse 11. Christ's sacrifice is the time of reformation. Christ is the perfect Lamb. Verse 14. Christ does cleanse your conscience. To the Jewish Christian under persecution, these truths were intended to stop the conscience from searching for something more. There is nothing better than free grace through faith in Christ alone. Paul said the promise by faith was a gift from God. The Christian must stop adding one more condition to that faith. Just stop. Trust. Believe. And be freed from under the yoke of the bondage of sin and law. And be under Christ and Him alone. And His authority over your heart and soul. Let's finish with prayer. Father, we thank You. A few minutes over, but oh Lord, what a wonderful thought it is and acknowledgement, oh Lord, that our consciences are free because Your sacrifice is once and for all and finished. To allay that conscience, to bring guilt no more, to bring us back into bondage and to relieve it, O oh Lord, forever. Oh, we worship You today, O oh Lord, as the one who is the conscience reliever. And, O Lord, let our hearts sing uh, praises to your holy name for this great sacrificial work to which you did on Calvary. And your victory, O Lord, as you sit on David's throne even now. Oh, to the praise of your name. Amen. But to notice the Bible is that one of the original manuscripts? Yes. <laughs> it is one of the original manuscripts. Really? Yeah. Wow. How do I shut this thing off now? Uh, at the moment. <laughs> How do I shut this off, Sandy? Just which one I press? That one or that one? I would say.